beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Good morning, Dr. Black. How are you today? I'm good, Sean. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Nice and alert. <laughs> uh, happy to be here and happy to interview another person. Another interesting, compelling interview. Uh, we love doing this. And again, thank you to all the listeners across the globe. We see that you guys are listening and we just hope that we're putting out content that you enjoy. And once again, thank you for, uh, again, tuning in. So without much delay, we have on today with us Kayla Moryusuf, and she is a community worker, registered social service worker from Toronto, who has been volunteering and working in end-of-life palliative care for over seven years. She is a death educator, death doula candidate with Home Hospice Association and project manager for all of their death cafes across southern Ontario. Kayla truly believes in the profound power of a good death and its lasting effects on healthy individuals, families, and communities at large. At the age of 15, Kayla's life was profoundly changed by bearing witness to the death of her grandmother, a primary parent and one of the most formative figures in her life to this date. And you can find her work at gooddeath.ca and on Instagram, gooddeathdoula, Facebook, gooddeathdoula, and uh, you can email her, Kayla, at gooddeath.ca. Kayla, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, we'll just quickly begin with, we actually met before, and we met at the Death Symposium. Yeah, the International Death Symposium. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, we had a good conversation, and uh, I know I was, I remember being very interested in the death doula um, field, because I've never really heard about it before um, in detail until we met. So again, it's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, if, do you guys want me to kind of break down a bit what the death doula is? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to uh, definitely get into that and all the other good things that you do. First, we just wanted to actually go uh, start from the beginning and how you got into the... You started with the home hospice care, is that correct? Yeah, I started doing home hospice care with Hospice Toronto. So they offer in-home palliative care. Uh, they send volunteers into the home uh, to offer respite to family members who are caregiving for their loved ones who are dying. Amazing. And what made you get into that field? I will be honest with you. I was looking for a volunteer experience that would send me right into the field. And at the time, I had no credentials and no experience. And Home Hospice was willing to train you. They did about 40 hours of training and send you into the field into a client caregiver relationship. And I thought, this is amazing. I like I have absolutely no experience and they're willing to train me and send me right into the field. What an amazing opportunity. So I went and I did the training and it just spoke to me. I was like, something just went like a light bulb went off. Like kind of when you see in the cartoons, that light bulb moment, that's what happened for me. And mm. I was like, this is it. This is like, this is. I was built for this. This is what I want to be doing. And But I also had uh, kind of um, a lot of fear when I did the training that that even though I was, it was really speaking to me in the training, was it going to be, was it going to translate when I, when I went into the homes of the clients? Was I going to be able to do this thing that I was so passionate about learning? And luckily it did translate. And when I was in the homes with the people, what I had learned about kind of in books and in class applied in person in real life as well um, so that's how it got started for me was that somebody was willing to give me a chance that's very interesting and and that's that's a that's a very accurate statement about what happens sometimes because I remember going through school and sometimes you don't know whether what you learn or what you're doing you know what you're learning about theoretically and you know what the actual reality of it is you don't know if you'll like both and and yeah, I could see that with with the field, especially you're talking about taking care of people. Um, it's one thing to kind of understand it, but it's a different thing to kind of get in there. So tell me a little more in detail. What was it like when you were actually in there and what was that difference like? Um, well, my first client was uh, it was an overnight client and which is at rare. It's not the common case that you have an overnight client, but um, that was the one they offered to me because it was in my neighborhood. And I would actually most of the time just go watch movies with uh, his wife. Um, mm -hmm. She wanted company and that's how it worked out. 
until it was offering uh, respite, she would either to finally take her sleep or I was watching movies with her and I would um, stay up and lay next to him there. They had brought a hospital bed into his room. Um, so they kind of like set it up at the end of life. They set it up almost like a hospital room and I would just lay next to him and I wouldn't sleep. I think I could have, but I was too afraid to sleep and I wouldn't sleep and I would just be there and hold space hold space for that person to sleep and to, to do, I mean, when he woke up, it was really beautiful, actually. I remember I would always wake in, walk in, and um, even though he was dying, he would always, like, wake up and ask me how I was, um, and then he would go back to sleep, and uh, I would just sit there and be there with him, um, and, you know, each week when I showed up, he was he was less, you know, less there, less present, less physically there less physically um, capable. And then I remember the last week I showed up, I, I just had a feeling that it was my last week there, my last week seeing him. And uh, I was right. I got a call a couple of days later. And as soon as the phone rang, I was like, my client died. I looked at my mom, I was with her. And I was like, my client died. I have a feeling that's what this call's about. And I was right. And that's uh, just, that was my first experience. And I felt, I felt so empowered by it. I felt so privileged. It's like, who am I? I'm just a stranger. And I'm being invited into this person's house at this most vulnerable time in their life. Yeah, that is a special moment because a lot of times people have these walls up around them. It's hard to get that personal with someone so quickly, but you're able to do that. And it's amazing that they're able to let you in. Because I'm guessing yeah. they, they have to sign off. You're not just there for their caregiver. They're signing off that, that you're allowed to be there as they, as they die too. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and I just, I really do feel privileged. I feel so lucky i feel i i don't i don't know like what i did to get so lucky to be honest i because i really i'm overwhelmed with this feeling of who am i like what this is really the most vulnerable time in a person's life in a family's life and and i'm just being invited into their homes which it's i think even more personal and more intimate than a hospital room or a hospice did you find it challenging at all? Because I know sitting with people suffering can be challenging. So was it, was there ever an issue? Have you got better at that? Or have you just always just had knack for being and providing that space? Um, well, you know, they taught me something really amazing in my training, or I mean, it came out of my training. And one of the things that really sat with me or stuck with me was that this is not my sadness. This is not my story. I have a job to do. And that is a really powerful thing. Like if, if I take on this sadness, who's going to do this job? And um, so that's one thing that I really, really hold on to when I'm, when I'm going to perform this job. And then the other, the other piece is that, yes, there's suffering and yes, it's sad. But the way I see it is like, this is going to be an unfortunate time in life. Um, like, but I get to make it a little less unfortunate. I get to make it a little less horrible. And so that's just another place, another reason in which I feel privileged and lucky. Yeah, it's it's incredible when you think about it, because I would imagine that, um, you know, that's you that, again, you just said it that's you early on in your career. And if it's I'm just thinking about like young people doing volunteering jobs, and there's such a gap between like, impact and like, you know, really, like, I guess, how serious it is, uh, but also how fulfilling and what what it what it really is, like what you talked about, like, you didn't feel worthy that to come witness someone's, you know, death and and you know some kids are out there you know mowing lawns for volunteering work or whatever coaching kids baseball i'm not saying those things aren't important but mm -hmm. like here you are like kind of you know sitting with someone at, at that point in their life did that impact you moving forward and maybe solidify something or or you know you obviously have to make a decision at that point is this is me or this is not me well, yeah, I just, I honestly think everyone's built for something. Um, my mom is an artist. My sister's an architect. I can't do what they do, but I can do this. Mm. And so I, that's just how I feel. I feel like everyone's built for something and I happen to find what I was built for. And as I look back on my life, there are times where I felt like I had, or I see that I had already been doing this type of work. And I, I thought it kind of started with the death of my grandmother, but my mom said it started earlier and um, with an incident when I was in grade four. And, she, you know, I think she might be right. So, you know, um, 
I think everyone's built for something. This just happens to be what I'm built for. It just makes sense to me. Incidentally, you know, it's really funny uh, because it wasn't until um, this opportunity to speak with you, uh, with you came up. It was a grief dream or not a quite, not quite a grief dream, but I had had this dream or this nightmare about a peer of mine in class in grade four that his dad was dying in the hospital and I was in the hospital. I'd never met his dad before and I'd never met his stepmom before, but I was in the hospital with his dad and his stepmom and his dad was dying and they were all there crying and I was trying to comfort them and I didn't know what to do. And I woke up and it was so vivid that it really affected me. And I was really upset. And all morning I was crying and crying. I told my mom about the dream and I didn't want to go to school. And I like, I didn't want to do anything. I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I was beside myself. I was so upset about the dream. And we went to school and my mom told my teacher that I had this really distressing dream. And so like, that's why I'm out of sorts today. And my teacher pulled me aside at recess and said, um, with this, this, um, this boy who was in my class, his name was Michael, they were together. And my teacher said, um, your mom told me about the dream you had. I talked to Michael. He said it was okay to talk to you. We wanted to let you know that his dad is dying of cancer and, um, or his dad is in the hospital with cancer. And, um, like, we really appreciate your concern, but you don't need to worry. Like, he has the best care possible. And, like, we think you're a really good friend to Michael, but, like, you know, don't don't worry. I don't remember what they said to me exactly, but I just remember that they pulled me aside to essentially tell me that, like, this has happened. <laughs> That's crazy. I know, and it freaked me out. And I didn't want to sleep for weeks after that. It because freaked I you thought out. And trying not to freak. Don't freak out. Trying, <laughs> yeah, and I basically thought I made it happen, and I didn't want to sleep. But um, but they then were and freaking out. yeah, and and even thereafter, just like whenever people, um, from a very young age, when people in my family or friends of family died, and and there were funerals or shivas or something i was always the one to go to to just be the be the support person and from like uh like eight nine ten i was just always the person to go partially because it fascinated me and partially because i was just like i was just kind of that rock character in my family so i would always go to funerals with people and um it just made sense to me that's just what you did when somebody died you showed up and wow. so it was always in my nature to be that way. I think that's amazing that you're almost like was born to do this. You know, like you start thinking about like all the different paths that are out there that we all can take and just finding that right one that just like sinks in. It's like, you know, finding that love of your life. It just hits you one moment. And it seems like in your life, like this was just a path. I'm really happy that you found it because there's so many people that are on the, like are trying to find like what they're good at or what moves them and it's amazing to see that you have found that at such a young age too so now like what so what brought you into then okay i volunteered and then when did you find out about death doula because i only found that out probably maybe a year or two ago but like there was a thing out there that you could actually be get a certificate in and so what about you like how did you find out that that this was a thing that you could actually make a living off of well, I knew that I was very interested in home hospice. When I found out that there were like essentially three options for um, places where people could die in hospitals, in their in residential hospices or in their homes, I knew I was interested in helping facilitate deaths in the home. And then so I moved on from volunteering and working with Hospice Toronto to volunteering and working with Home Hospice Association, which was uh, more of like a grassroots newer uh, organization, which is really developing and growing um, and they're doing great things and I found out through them that there was such a thing as a death doula because they do death doula training and I was like <laughs> I'm sold it just I, I just found out through them that they that they trained death doulas and what a death doula was and I it just made perfect sense to me again um, so I was sold what exactly is a death doula for people listening um, well, I, I kind of always go back to what I find really interesting is the, is the origins of the word doula is kind of means servant or to serve. And a doula, a traditional doula, a birthing doula brings, helps guide or bring somebody into the world. 
So a death doula alternately would help guide or bring somebody out of the world. Um, so uh, I I kind of try and sum it up um, in three kind of major roles. The first one is sitting vigil. So you sit bedside, you offer respite to the family, and you hold space for the dying person. The second one is death planning, which is the who, what, when, where, why, smell, sight, taste, and sounds for when the person is actively dying. So you try and get those things ready for when the person is actively dying so that they can have their wishes met and they can have a good death. And the third piece is legacy work, which is what do you, um, what do you want to leave behind and how can I help you? Um, and then there is actually kind of like a huge fourth piece, which is what do you want to happen with, uh, after you die and how can I help that happen? Cause there's, uh, a lot, a lot happening now in terms of like the home funeral movement and a lot of people are, uh, wanting that to happen and we're seeing that happen more and more and death doulas are helping with that more and more as well. I'm interested. What goes on with the the house funeral? A home funeral. Well, I'm actually less uh, less knowledgeable in that, but things like people don't know that like you can you can wash the body of your loved one after they die, and you can keep death doulas are now being trained to preserve a body within the home for a couple of days so that you can have visitation and fun- the funeral kind of within the home, and instead of like you know just having the body rushed out of the house which is what we traditionally do so it's almost going full circle because i'm guessing that's probably what they did prior to exactly yeah the funeral homes and stuff wow exactly the death doula is kind of kind of an old concept right it's not this isn't like a revolutionary thing This, this is something that's probably happening around the world and was happening years and years ago that where we cared for our dying and we cared for our dying in the home and we guided our our dying out of the world with care and love and compassion and we didn't just send them into an institution yeah i would imagine that it it would add something to the to the family if they want that you know if they feel Mm -hmm. like they're missing a part because sometimes um you know, person dies, like, let's just talk, I'll just um, go over how my grandmother, she ended up dying uh, in the hospital. And at that point, you're like, okay, what do I do now? And it's like, Mm -hmm. they take care of the rest, you know, the body's kind of taken to the funeral home, and they kind of handle it from there. And back in the day, you know, ancient times, we used to do that ourselves. And right. I think that that is an aspect, there's something to that ritual of taking the body, taking care of it, cleaning it, doing whatever right, you exactly. do. As soon as I found out that like after, my, my mother is still very much alive, but as soon as I found out that it was actually Caitlin Doty who was speaking at the International Death Symposium. And uh, one of the things she spoke to was that like, we can clean the bodies of our of our loved ones after they die. And I was like, oh my goodness, as soon as I found that out, I thought like, I want to do that for my mother when, when she does die. I want to be the last one to touch her. I want to be the one to clean her body. Like I want, I want that. I want to do that for her. I want to do that for me. Like what a beautiful kind of rite of passage. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's obviously some people in, you know, society and family that don't want to do that stuff. And that's obviously okay. You know, that's accepted, but there are those who kind of rise up out of everybody else and you can kind of see it. And obviously you saw it when you were a child and growing up and even now, but there are those people who kind of rise up and naturally take those roles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, shout out to all you people who do that. You know, we don't sometimes, you know, think about it and things are just, I guess they're considered normal when you grow up in a family and you see people do things, but those people have a certain special thing and that's needed. And I, and obviously, you know, in society, those people who take care of their families or take care of others during these times or feel comfortable doing all those things. Like that's, that's, uh, and I guess the people who appreciate it the most are the ones who don't want to do those things. So, but yeah, yeah, that's an amazing, amazing thing. I'm curious too, because I keep hearing how like the baby boomers are dying. And so there's going to be like this death boom that's going yeah, to be Yeah, a boomer crisis. Oh, okay. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, there's just, there is a huge generation of people who are going to be dying. Our medical system is not equipped to handle it. 
And we have, therefore, also a huge generation of people who are going to become caregivers. The workforce is not prepared to handle what's going to happen to a generation of people who are going to become caregivers. We know what happens to absenteeism and presenteeism in the workplace when people become caregivers. It's just like there's, there's going to become a crisis. So we need we need to start um, accessing resources like death doulas and home hospice, and uh, we 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 need to see uh, dialogue in in politics about palliative care and end of life care and end of life resources. I mean, it's I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm feeling that's why death doula is like that's becoming such a big hot topic, and a thing that people are getting trained to do is because there is this looming crisis that's coming and so i don't fully even understand it but it seems like you do because you're more scared than i am <laughs> yeah well i'm i'm hoping you know something beautiful can come out of it and um i think the death positivity movement is part of it right and and part of the beautiful thing that might be coming out of it is that we we are going to have to face death as a society we are going to have to face the need for resources and the need for diversification of resources and the need to move away from the institutionalization of death. And so hopefully we do that gracefully and we do that in a compassionate way and in a knowledgeable way and in a resourceful way. And I mean, that could be happening. I hope that's what's happening. You know, there are lots of agencies popping up that are training death doulas and it's happening like um, I know with Home Hospice Association, they're continuing to do their training and the demand is there. So um, I know in the United States right now, death doula is coming close to becoming a regulated term. Once that happens, I think Canada will follow suit. Once it's a regulated term, I think people will take it more seriously and it'll be easier. To, it'll be become more employable. That's beautiful. I think that's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that say like there are those people out there that are, are seeing the curve of what's going to be go coming up and to prepare. And I hope that you so said Canada does make it a registered term. So yeah, yeah. Like it, it's important just like nurses or teachers. This is just another career that you need to regulate. You need to sort of make sure people have this, the, the best training possible to be employed in the field. And so like the way you're talking, you're very knowledgeable. I'm really excited for when you do graduate. So when you, are you going to be finished your program? Within the next couple months, I had to take a me brief medical leave. So um, I'm hoping to finish my coursework within the next couple months and, and then uh, get my, my candidacy will be official. Well, it's gotta be exciting. Does that feel like, are you feeling it yet that you're almost done? Um, I kind of, I hope so. I mean, I feel like I've been doing it for a very long time, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so it, in some ways it feels like I'm almost done. And in some ways it feels like nothing's going to change, but uh, something will change because it'll be more official for sure. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I know. Like it wasn't until I like, went up on stage and actually, you know, um, graduated from a PhD that it really hit me like and all the sort of the sacrifices you make and all the, the journey itself, like the full journey of everything that you've done. And just it, it hit me and the losses that I've suffered along the way that helped move me there. So yeah, it's, you never really know when, when it happens, you know, like when you're done, but you know, hopefully it, something does happen where you can appreciate like how far you've come in the journey and mm -hmm. just what you're able to do with even your loss, which I would love yeah. to talk because you were really young when you had your first loss, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it was your grandmother, is that right? It was my grandmother, yeah. I considered her to be a parent, for sure. But um, she was uh, biologically my grandmother. <laughs> and so what happened with her? Like, were you able to sit with her? Was it like, uh, wasn't a sudden death? Was it like more of a slow death? No, it wasn't a sudden death. She, um, she developed cancer. I don't even, to be honest, know how old she was. I think she was in her seventies and she developed cancer. Um, so it was like over the course of probably a couple of months and it was in the summer. So I was in between junior high and high school and, um, I remember the whole time I didn't cry. The whole time she was sick, I didn't cry because I thought if if somebody has to be the one not crying, otherwise who's going to take care of the crying people? 
Um, and so I didn't cry the whole time she died. She was, she was dying rather. Sorry. And, um, and I remember the day she died, I woke up, I was supposed to go to work. I was working at a camp and I said to my mom, uh, we called her Guggy. I called her Guggy and I was like, Guggy's going to die today. I'm, I'm coming to the hospital. I'm not going to work. And my mom's like, you have go to work and then come to the hospital. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to work today. I'm coming to the hospital. Guggy's going to die today. And she's like, just go to work and come to the hospital after. And I was like, no, I'm coming to the hospital. So we, we argued about it. And then I um, didn't go to work and I came to the hospital and it's a good thing I did because my grandmother died that day and I would have been at work um, when she died, but I watched her take her last breath, which is really amazing, really beautiful. Another like privileged moment for me, which is really cool. Cause so we walked in the room and she kind of smirked, I guess, with her like last bit of energy. And, um, she, at one point near the end of the day, like her eyes shot open, but they were like very pale because people lose pigment in their eyes when they're, um, at the end of life. And they like scanned the room between where the wall hits the ceiling. They scanned through the ceiling, through the wall. And then she took her last breath and closed her eyes and that was it. And I remember thinking in that moment, cause I was definitely like an atheist and I was like, I don't know if I can believe in nothing anymore just because of the way she stared through the ceiling. And, um, and because of what I had just witnessed, it was very interesting. And, and since that moment, I definitely have not believed in nothing anymore just because I think death is really powerful and profound. Um, so yeah, I got to witness, I got to witness her last breath and I felt really privileged for that. And I got to be there for her dying and I always used to sing to her. She'd ask me to sing to her. And I feel like, I feel like, I feel like actually her, her death was my first experiences with Abdullah. And yeah, well, it seems like it. And what, what would you use to sing to her? Like what songs did she want? Oh, Pennies from Heaven, which is like an old Bing Crosby song. I actually have a tattoo um, of an upside down umbrella from the song because it talks about how every time it rains, it rains pennies from heaven. And so make sure your umbrella is upside down so you can catch the pennies from heaven and um, and trade the pennies for sunshine and flowers. So basically the idea is that it rains for a reason. Um, so that was the main song. She asked me to sing to her. Uh, what was her connection with that song? Did she have like others that she lost or was she just like, um, to no, I, she, I guess it was, I, I feel like she was trying to communicate with me something. I think it was like, you know, in retrospect, it was like, it was a very good parting, parting message for me. You know, it was a very good, helpful thing to leave me with the idea that like, you know, rain, you know, bad bad things happen or like dark days happen and and they happen for a reason and you know it's okay it's gonna be okay so <laughs> i think that was really helpful it was a helpful thing my you know my upside down umbrella is there to collect pennies when it rains and trade them for sunshine and flowers so <laughs> yeah uh, it's pretty helpful yeah in retrospect it was it was very helpful it's a helpful kind of mantra yeah, it's interesting right like i think you know, grandparents and like people older than us, they can do things that we don't really know until later on. Like, yeah. They're worth kind of thing. So did you get that tattoo because of that? Or did you like that song on your own? I got it, the tattoo. Well, I got the tattoo because of my grandma, because of the song, my grandma asked me to sing to her, but I actually mm -hmm. got the tattoo when one of my dogs died. I get tattoos when, my, I'm a crazy dog lady and so I tend to get tattoos whenever one of my dogs dies to kind of commemorate the that death and then I had wanted and so I was very sad uh, that my dog had died and I needed to remember that it rains for a reason so I got the upside down umbrella also to honor my grandmother I have lots of tattoos to honor my grandmother though <laughs> although I'm sure she wouldn't be pleased about that <laughs> <laughs> why she didn't have any tattoos herself no definitely not <laughs> that's beautiful to hear too that you you have dogs and you love dogs i know sean here is a big dog lover <laughs> and uh we were talking about like other people that come on the podcast on how impactful they are to our lives and so for you when your dogs died how is that 
different from maybe when your grandmother died? Um, it's really interesting because it's like there's a lot of mixed feelings that happen when a human being dies. And when a dog dies, there are less mixed feelings because it's just like pure love that you exchange with a dog. Um, I had like a lot of guilt when my grandmother died for all the times that I should have spent with her. And I had a lot of, you know, human beings are flawed. So I had, there were, there were things about my relationship with my grandmother that were less than ideal, as I think everybody has with the people who raise them. And, but like, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm able, with my dogs, I'm able to like take that love I had for a dog and pass it and extend it to another dog, share it with another dog to honor, to honor the dog I've lost. Whereas like, you can't do that with a grandma. Yeah, I, I, it makes sense. I, I get what you're trying to say. It, it's, it's, um, humans are, are complex and there's lots of different variables and there's a back and forth and, um, comp it's it's very complicated you know and mm-hmm. i think also like you're you're looking at this from you know you're you're the guy you're the guardian angel you're the t- caregiver you're the primary you know parent essentially for these animals and um you know i think that might be a little bit different uh mm-hmm. relationship maybe like a maybe like a a human you know parent and child Maybe that type of relationship, which you haven't experienced on the human level, I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, on the animal level, yeah. So, you know, I, I know what you're saying for sure. Mm-hmm. And so how many dogs uh, have passed away? Well, so I I fostered dogs for the Humane Society, and I am the person who walks in. And I'm like, who's the hardest to foster? Okay, I'll take like the hype, like the cluster seizure epileptic dog, and you know. And so I've I've um and I've also been there for like the death of like my dad's dog. I'm the person who shows up again um, when people I love pets are dying. Um, so it's just another way in which I'm a death doula. Um, so I've been there for the death of, um, I might, I'm just getting on my two childhood dogs. And then I have, I foster, I, sorry, I tend, I tend to rescue senior dogs. So they also, I don't have them as long. Um, my two childhood dogs, my foster dog, my last rescue dog, and my dad's dog. So I've been there for the death of about five or six dogs. Yeah, it's pretty profound. It's pretty intense. Yeah, that's a lot of loss because you it's care about you care about these these people and these animals, and you're just like there, you know, like I want to be there. like I want to yeah. be there. I want to. I don't want them to be alone, and I know that I can be. I know that I can be calm and solid in that moment. Maybe not right after, but um, I know that I can be like I can hold space for them while they're dying. I know that I can do that. I know that I'm good at that. And so that's what I do. Yeah, sounds like it. And and again, you know, it seems like you're just comfortable being there whereas you know, I'm I, I'm sure a lot of people um it's fearful. You know, it is a scary mm-hmm. thing sometimes and and they that's the last place they want to be. Like it's like going to a dentist, you know, you don't really exactly. want to be yeah. there. But like you, you're comfortable there. That that's that's something. And you know, when I was sitting with my grandmother, I felt, I thought about that. I thought, cause mm-hmm. there was always a question. Okay. Uh, you know, I know I, I, I talk to people who do hospice. I can, you know, read about it, but can I sit with a dying person? And mm-hmm. I, I felt good because I was like, you know, I, I can do this at least with my family member. I can do this. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's chances a, are, if you can do yeah. it with your family member, you could do it with a stranger. Oh wow, yeah. Well, that that just shows you how much fear there is that people have a hard, even are fearful of sitting with their family members, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. It's natural. It's like I'm not knocking you if you if you're scared of those things. That's okay because of course, people, yeah. People like Kayla who can uh, come in and help you. Exactly. Exactly. And so, do they in the in your program? Do they just talk about human loss, or, or do they also talk about being a death doula for pets too? In like at home hospice association, they they I, they briefly touch on pet loss, but they have a program. They do have a program called the Bellow Project, which helps facilitate 
keeping the pet with the dying person. So not really uh, being a death doula for dying animals, Hmm. but for helping uh, dying people keep their pets. Because one of the first things that happen um, when a family is taking care of a dying person is they can't take care of a pet too, right? So they get rid of the pet. When like, that's, that's sad. It's sad and undignified. Like a, a dying person deserves to have their pet with them. And yeah, so that, that, I'm just thinking about that. Like, man, yeah, like, people oh don't my... think about things like that. That's crazy. Yeah. So Home Office Association has a program called the Bellow Project, which, which helps try and keep the pet with the dying person for as long as possible and then helps try and find um, a match for the pet for after the dying person um, has died so that they keep the pet out of the rescue system. Um, and so that the dying person has the peace of knowing where their pet's going, which I think is a really beautiful and profound program and very, very needed. Yeah, no, that's, uh, um, that's amazing. I never thought of that myself until you said that. And, and cause the animals, they, they help us, they help us emotion regulate, they help us with the transition and like, they're their own death doulas, right? Like yeah. <laughs> they're good at sitting with our suffering. Yeah, I know that if I found out I was dying and then somebody said, and your pet's got to go, I'd say then I I, I want to die now. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I was thinking about that. I was like, man, that's my mm-hmm. baby. Where I can't just drop him off somewhere. Like, you know, just yeah, the, exactly. Like, who knows? I think about mm-hmm. that. I have thought about that, that if I suddenly croak or just, you know, get by car or something, <laughs> who's going to, who's going to take care of my dog? I mean, I have like a exactly. like, good, good family system and friends around me that I don't think they throw them in a shelter, but you think about those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I do know that like, if you go online, I don't know them offhand, but there are pet hospices. There are, I'm sure, death doula type uh, resources for dying animals. I know it exists. Yeah, actually, um, I, I want it's one of my dreams to get this um, guy, Stephen Kotler on. Um, he uh, essentially has a uh, dog hospice. Um, that him and his wife set up but yeah they they um they do that and um in his he wrote a book and in his book he talks a lot about um what it's like um essentially having a revolving door of death because like he takes they take the worst of the worst and like you know the pack will thin out and then get bigger and thin out and get bigger but these always they're always around it so i'd love to have him on but yeah that that's a it's it's starting to get uh you know prevalent and i think that this is you know in today's day and age like these movements are happening you know even talk about death doulas you know i think you talked about how there's going to be a huge influx of baby boomers passing away dying so mm-hmm. they're going to want other options a lot of them are not going to want to die in a facility or in exactly. a hospice so this is you know to provide this option to people at large you know that's a great thing Exactly. And we and we just we know there is research. Um, there's a great publication by the Vanier Institute. Uh, it was called Death Dying in Canadian Families. I'm not quite sure what the um, what the reissue is called, but it talks about the impact of a good death on communities at large. And we know that good deaths leave lasting impacts on the health of uh, on like positive lasting impacts on the health of families and communities at large. So we need to start striving to have better better deaths yeah take away like say like maybe some of the bereaves guilt or things that they wish they mm-hmm. could have done better or just mm-hmm. to not see them suffer so much exactly those are the people that are part of the community as you move forward so yeah it's uh it's amazing the impact it can have and and now i'm glad the we're talking about it some more and more people are raising awareness like you are and so the one thing you're doing is death cafe so can you explain that and you know, why why this is important yeah, death cafes are super exciting. I love them. Um, so death cafes are just open forum conversations about dying and death. They're not support groups. They're not for people who are actively grieving. They're for anybody and everybody to just come and talk about dying and death. They're trying to remove the stigma and the ta- taboo around dying and death and about talking about dying and death. Um, usually, so people just come and um, we do a brief intro, which introduces the movement. It's an international movement that started in the UK uh, by a gentleman named John Underwood. And 
people just come and sit down and start chatting about dying and death. Um, at the ones that I've held, we have conversation starters that are questions like, what's the last song you'd like to hear before you die? What does legacy mean to you? Um, would you like, well, who would you like to be with you when you die? And it's really just to get people thinking about and talking about dying and death. That's a wonderful idea because oftentimes the, the only time we kind of think about death is when someone dies near us. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is this is tremendous because, you know, this is the second part of what life is, and that's death. Mm-hmm. And if we don't think about it, we don't mull it over, we don't, you know, toss that idea in our head back and forth, we don't really uh, get to know it. We don't really get used to it. And again, not even thinking about how we would want our death. And so I think mm-hmm. that it's, it's, and again, shifting it, because it's a heavy word. So, so shifting, you know, trying to open up that heavy word and, you know, that negative connotation around it into a, into a stimulating environment where you can actually ask those questions and not look like a weirdo. Cause like, if you go on the normal street today and if I told my friend, Oh, I'm going to a death doula, you know, or I'm going to a, sorry. Yeah. Or I'm going to a death doula. Or I'm going to a death cafe. You know, they'd be like, look at me a little bit odd. Like, are you okay? Yeah. (laughs) So I think breaking out of that idea is important. And so this is a great idea. It's it's phenomenal. Yeah. I always say the time to start advocating for end of life rights and choices are long before you need them. Because when you like, you know, when you are hit, like when you find out you're dying, you're hit with decisions um, and choices a mile a minute. And it's kind of too late to advocate for half of them. And so talking about dying and death, uh, early on and thinking about dying and death early on is really beneficial to everybody. But also, it's I find it really liberating. Like, you know, people think what I do is morbid. And I just like, I don't think so. I don't feel that way. I don't think that way at all. Um, I find that dealing in death is a really liberating thing to do. I don't fear death. I don't walk around fearing death. I don't live my life fearing death. I I know what people fear. I know what people regret the most on their deathbeds. And I get to live my life in line with those values, which is like, what a gift. You know, I'm not, I'm not, if I died tomorrow, I wouldn't die with regrets because, because I know what people regret on their deathbeds and I live my life every day with that in mind. What's some of the most common regrets people have as they're dying? I wish I had let myself be happier. Uh, I wish I had spent more time on my relationships or I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I wish I hadn't worked so hard is a big one. Yeah, that's interesting, right? We work so hard to get ahead, to have money and the sense of freedom when you retire. Mm-hmm. But usually when that time comes, you're on, you said you may be dying. And so you don't mm-hmm. get to really enjoy life because you work so hard to accumulate this money. That's so interesting. Yeah. 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 So really have make make time to play make time to have fun in life exactly. and don't take it so seriously yeah that's exactly. that's beautiful that's very beautiful yeah so death yeah. reaffirms life because you know by thinking about death you're actually reaffirming what's important in life because you're exactly. like exactly because like why so rather than you know so if a person says i wish i didn't work so much you know what they're missing is well I, when they worked when you know whatever the child had a piano recital or, you know, they took an extra shift at work to, to earn more money when, you know, they could have, I don't know, whatever, went to a Blue Jays game or something. So, like, that's, that's you know, again, I think that's the that's the key part there is that, you know, rather than fearing a word, you know, understanding that, hey, if we unravel this, unwrap it and how it is according to our life, it can actually reaffirm how to live a better life exactly it's not it's not about death and dying it's about life and living you know it's like they're really one and the same <laughs> i like that that's really good yeah yeah it's very yeah, it's very catchy yeah <laughs> it's a good slogan yeah. <laughs> but yeah finding meaning in life now not waiting until you're done working absolutely uh, so that this has been a very beautiful conversation i've learned yeah. a lot learning a lot about you and how beautiful you are and how you're able to sit with suffering so easily. And it wasn't really like you were trained. It just it was a natural progression for you and you know, in this life. And that's interesting for me, just that your meaning is by able to sit with people who are dying, like and yeah. helping them find solitude and space to maybe for the first time be free or be open about their fears and what they wish they could have done. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So yeah, so good for you for doing what you do. 
we always like to ask in the podcast, have you ever had any dreams of anyone who's died? So either your grandmother, maybe any of your dogs or any clients that have passed on? Yeah, mostly my grandmother. I have like two kind of recurring dreams about my grandmother. One of them is that she's about to die and I can't get to her. And then one of them is that she's, and one of them is similar, that she's like about to die or like she's about to die again, but it's been like years and I haven't seen her. And I'm like suddenly overcome with like guilt for having not seen her for years and she's about to die and like, uh, and I don't know why I haven't seen her for years and I've just found out. Um, So those are the two kind of reoccurring dreams I have about my grandmother. And I just found out this week because I was telling my sister that I was doing this podcast. She has the same dream about my grandmother that she hasn't seen her for years and she just finds out that she's going to die. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. And so what do you, what do you take that to be or to mean? I have no idea to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's according to like sort of some of the research I've done at Brock with like some of these negative dreams. Um, it could be trauma. It could be even unresolved feelings of guilt or regret or even blame. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that uh, you had some regrets when it came to your, your grandmother. And so it could be just that, because if it's recurring, there's something there that hasn't solidified in your waking life yet. That's something that we do know, right? When it comes to recurring dreams, you see that a lot with you with PTSD. It's like these recurring dreams happen until the symptoms um, can get under control. So for you, there's got to be some something there about those, you said those regrets that you probably haven't really fully worked on. Okay. Um, that's causing them to be. And so a great way to maybe even change it up is to, it's called dream rescripting. And mm-hmm. so what you do is you take your dream, whatever it was that you want to do, like maybe you can't get to her, but then you, you change the outcome of the ending of the dream. And so uh, you can either you know prolong it or maybe she comes back. Um, I don't know what you want to do, but that it's one thing you can do and you make it something positive and then you rehearse that during the weeks, uh, like okay. for, for a week. And then those dreams will tend to decrease. When do I rehearse it? When do I do that? When you're, when you're awake. Oh, okay. So I like visualize it. Yeah. You'll visualize it. Yeah. And then, uh, okay. from there, what, what can happen is those maybe decrease and then what may occur is then maybe they, they change to something more positive. And so okay, I've seen, cool. yeah, I've seen this a lot, even with people who have negative dreams of their deceased, and then they do these techniques or they work on the issue that the dream is sort of talking about, and then mm-hmm. the dream uh, changed to something more positive. Okay, that cool. It, what I'm you want, board. yeah, what you want, and it's just like her maybe singing that song to you this time. <laughs> you okay, <know>? cool. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's, but it's kind of interesting that even your sister has the same dream, so. I don't yeah. know if there's a similar issue there that you guys can talk about together and, and right see like, you know, what's going on. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and so as we uh, like to wrap up the podcast, we ask one question, and that is, if you could have a dream tonight of your of anyone who's died, what would that look like to you? Oh, I'd have the, I'd have a dream. I dream about my grandmother for sure. Um, but I'd hang out with her now, like in my present day. And I'd talk, like I'd talk to her as an adult, um, and like adult to adult. Just, I'd, I'd just hang out with her as I am today. And do you sure. want her, do you want her like the same age she was when she died or do you want her a little younger? Maybe I'd have her younger. Like mm. I'd, I'd maybe hang out with her like two, two 33 year olds. Oh, wow. Yeah. That'd be interesting. No gray hair. Yeah. Will you even recognize uh, her? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. That would be weird because she always had that magical silver hair. So, uh, but I would. Oh no, no. Maybe because she's still she's so magical as a grandma. So she'd still be my older grandma, but mm-hmm. she would she would have me as an adult. Mm. I think it would be so cool to like talk to her as I am today. Yeah, that'd be amazing. It'd be yeah. so amazing. And yeah. where do you want it to be taking place? Um, just in Toronto at like, I don't know, so many of the places she took me to as a kid are gone. And that's like one of the weird things that always wears me out is like all of these places that I associate with her are just like 
gone. Can I can I bring back one of the places we used to go to together? Of course, it's a, it's a dream. It's a dream. Bring it back. <laughs> okay, I would like bring back this place called the Coffee Mill. That is a little like Hungarian coffee shop that used to exist in Toronto. <laughs> That's cool. And what, what would you guys drink or eat there? I'd have like a f- iced mocha, and we'd have I don't know, like tuna salad or something. Something pretty boring, but just yeah. like exactly like it was when I was a kid. We'd just sit in a booth, and it would that part would be like it was when I was a kid. That sounds special. That sounds amazing to be able to yeah. share a moment like that. You know, a nice happy yeah, moment. Sure. And uh, yeah, I hope you get that. And um, you know, just be patient with yourself. It can be we can be hard on ourselves sometimes. We have these negative dreams, but you know, with with uh, hopefully with the advice Josh gave you, you can start to turn those around and really rescript your own uh, dreams. Yeah. Thank you very much. No problem. Kayla, can you, um, well, before we finish, I just want to say thank you for coming on. It's, it's, it's incredible. We really enjoy talking to people in the field and especially people who are uh, young and, and doing new things that can help service the community at large. It's, uh, it's a real special thing. And, you know, it seems like you had this gift from the beginning, you know, I, we'll call it a superpower that you discovered <laughs> you. along the way. And, and I'm glad that you foster that strength and, and, you know, it, that's so interesting how you said that. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening out there who, as a kid, you know, kind of had that in them and, and then they developed it as they got older. So mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm glad you had that superpower and, uh, you know, you're, you're just, again, servicing the people at large. Um, could you shout out your handles, your website so people can find you? Yeah, for sure. So it's uh, www.gooddeath.com. Dot ca uh, Instagram is good death doula Facebook is good death doula and my email is Kayla at gooddeath.ca amazing that's awesome uh, so uh, again once again thank you for coming on and thank you for all the listeners out there um, you can check us out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we added a donation button, and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram, at Grief Dreams. Just send, a, send us a message and add us there. Um, and also, if you have a chance, you can uh, please rate us on iTunes. That does help with uh, getting the website um, to more people. Um, and as always, like to end with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.